All right, so who is ready to talk about hell? Yeah, this is some exciting stuff. For me, I'd rather, you know, talk about, uh, you know, humorous anecdotes and talk about, uh, you know, you can look at my feet because Preacher Sneakers, uh, it's one of the hottest new Instagram accounts out there. It blew up this week, if you're not aware of it. Um, for all you hip young preachers out there, I think Matt and I fall right in that, um, that, uh, that, uh, that there was this Instagram account that started looking at all these kind of hip young, you know, pastor to the stars, Justin Bieber's pastor type of person. I'm not Justin Bieber's pastor, um, uh, but uh, a lot of, like 10 people have claimed that anyways, but looking at their shoes and how much they spent on shoes, and so I feel judged at least, like I feel people are looking at my feet today, and these were a gift from my parents, these shoes this morning, and my dad got them on sale, he's always looking for a deal, so, um, so I feel sort of the eyes of judgment are upon, upon me, and as we read this passage and we read Christ's words here, we should know that God is watching us too. But kidding aside, we, we come to this phrase in the creed that I, I would say is maybe the most neglected, and it's got to be the least popular. In, in, as the kind of classical English puts it, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The quick and the dead. And so, you know, maybe he descended into hell. Uh, that's more obscure. Uh, but if there's anything that makes modern Western Christians squirm, it's this return of Christ to judge. But there's no avoiding it. And, and I want to say that when, when we look at it, when we understand it, it's actually incredibly good news. Now, in Matthew, these are the last words of Jesus' teaching. This is the end of what's called the Olivet Discord. So it's this long sermon that's, that's Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. And, and, it, and it comes right before Jesus and, and his disciples eat the Passover supper. And then he'll return to the Mount of Olives and he'll be betrayed and arrested. So this is Jesus's, you know, last lecture, as it were. And so this whole teaching was, was prompted by the disciples' questions that came when Jesus, they were walking by the temple and Jesus said to the disciples, well, you're impressed by this building, by this structure. I tell you, not one stone will be left on top of the other. And we're like, well, this is huge news because this temple has stood for a long time. And so how are we supposed to know when 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 these things are going to happen. And in response, Jesus gives this, this extended teaching on how to live in light of the end. And his message is don't be lazy, don't be lackadaisical because the end delays its coming, and don't be obsessed with trying to read the signs of the time. It'll be like a thief in the night, but he says, be ready, always be ready because the end is coming. And with these verses here, Jesus brings us to the end of the end. All of this, he says, is building up to this last judgment, to the return of Christ to judge the quick and the dead. Now, there's, of course, many ways that, that Christ could say that he was returning as, but the fact that he says he's going to come again to judge raises questions about justice. What kind of justice, what kind of judgment is this? And, and in our popular Western conceptions of what justice is, there's this idea that justice, the criminal justice system, is about meriting out, you know, punishments. Or if it's civil justice, it's about rewards and punishments. Or we could think about, about justice being blind, and so justice is about everything being equal, equality. 
But in the Bible, justice is about something that transcends all of that. In the Bible, when it talks about God's justice, and, and the Greek word for justice and, and righteousness are, are the same word. It's about God restoring things to how they should be. It's like setting a, a broken bone back in place. It's about God bringing harmony to the midst of discord, order to the midst of chaos. And so our desire to see justice in this world, it's what something like N.T. Wright calls it an echo of a divine voice in this book, Simply Christian. He says, you know, despite sort of the the late modern Western world's desire to sort of put poor concrete or asphalt over our spirituality. There's this, these deep spiritual springs within each and every human purpose, each and every human soul. And one of them is that our desire, our innate desire to see justice done, to see wrongs in this world righted. And injustice is one of those things, when you see it, when you experience it, it, it just makes you angry. Because for some reason, we human beings believe that this world ought to be fair. One of my favorite uh, podcasts is called In the Dark. And its first season was about the Jacob Wetterling kidnapping, which if you grew up in Minnesota in the late 1980s, early 1990s, that was a case that absolutely terrified and fascinated you. And it was this just amazing look at that case and how it was investigated, and really the failures in that investigation and the failures of the Stearns County uh, Sheriff's Office. And so there was a season two, I mean, really amazing storytelling, investigative journalism, uh, and then there's a second season, and, and usually with podcasts, when you have like a hit first season, the second season just doesn't live up to the hype. Think of Serial, right? Season one, wow, amazing. Season two, eh. But this season two of In the Dark, to me, surpassed season one even. It's the story of a, a black man named Curtis Flowers who's in prison who had been tried six times for the same crime six times for this quadruple murder that took place in 1996 at Tardy Furniture in in a little town called Winona, Mississippi. And the story is incredible, not only because someone getting tried six times for the same crime, I mean, that's like, doesn't happen, but that it's been tried each time by the same prosecutor, Doug Evans. And so he, Curtis has been convicted four times and he's had two hung juries and three of the previous convictions have been thrown out because of constitutional violations by the prosecution. And his fourth conviction is actually currently uh, was the subject of a case that was recently heard at the Supreme Court and has to do whether or not his, his constitutional rights were violated by the prosecutor striking out jurors from the jury pool slowly, uh, solely because of their race. And this prosecutor was actually found to have done this twice before. That's why two of the previous convictions um, were vacated. And so one thing, as you listen to the audio of the justices listening to this case across the ideological spectrum, they were just struck, they were shocked by the fact that the same prosecutor, Doug Evans, was the same person who tried this case time and again, despite the fact that the Mississippi Supreme Court had found that he had improperly struck jurors because of their race from the jury pool. And it was so egregious that they vacated the conviction. And if you know anything about the legal system, that just does not happen. That is exceedingly rare. And so everyone's natural reaction in hearing this, that the same guy, Doug Evans, is trying this guy yet again. They go, well, why doesn't someone else take this case? Because if you can't trust the prosecutor and you can't trust the process, 
You can't trust that justice is being done. Because ultimately, the the truth of the matter is this, that our sense of justice, it really is a matter of faith. The whole system is predicated on faith. Faith that, that the laws are just. Faith that the laws are being administered fairly. Faith that the legal system is, you know, free from bias. Faith that everyone can get their fair shake and their day in court. Faith that, you know, we're going to try to live up to our foundational principles like a, like a, like a speedy uh, and fair trial and, and, and the presumption of innocence and a trial by a jury of our peers. And if someone's found guilty, they're not going to be subject to cruel or unusual punishment. And once you've served your time, you can be reintegrated into society. So justice depends on our faith in the system, our, our faith in the standards, and, and most importantly, though, it's our faith in the people who are administering, who are tasked, charged with administering justice. And where our system fails and falls short, we, we try to do what we can to correct it and, and make it better, but it sometimes seems like this, you know, Sisyphean task, like we, we will never be able to get close to justice. And the American legal system, I mean, it's, it, it, it is the envy of the world. And when we examine it closely, we know that it often does fall woefully short of delivering true justice, right? It produces results, but we're not always confident that it produces justice. And we're aware of what it looks like for the justice system to fail. It happens every single day. And it's the best we've got. And maybe that's one reason why passages like this fill us with fear and trembling, because at our core, there's this question that haunts us. We're talking about this last judgment. Can we trust God to get it right? What if God is not fair when it comes to shepherding, separating sheep and goats? And, you know, we're not talking about here even something like a death penalty case or a life sentence. Jesus is talking about eternity. The sheep go to the right, enter into the kingdom for all eternity. But the goats, well, the goats on the left, they get sent to this eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the question, the debate of, you know, hell. Sometimes people hear this teaching about hell, eternal fire, and, and, and it's this question of, well, is this a place of eternal conscious torment, or, or is there some kind of annihilation of the soul or human consciousness that takes place? I mean, the punishment Jesus is talking here about is, is something of everlasting consequence, no matter if it's of, you know, everlasting consciousness. And at the end of the day, no matter what we say about it, there is no softening of the fact that that for Jesus, this is the worst fate that could befall a human person, to be eternally separated from God and and eternally excluded from the kingdom. You know, we want to soften the edges of this vision, but there's no knowledge of Greek, there's no, you know, fancy exegesis, no cultural context that can save us from the stark picture of the last judgment that Jesus presents us with here. Sheep to the right, goats to the left. He will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Now, whether this passage ultimately draws us towards God or or, or repels us and pushes us away, for me, it boils down to this question of who is the one who is doing the judging? 
Do we trust in the one who is coming to judge? The one who's doing the separating of the sheep and the goats. Do we trust this judge and do we trust his standards of judgment? And so who is this judge? Matthew tells us that he's the son of man, the king, implicitly within this teaching, the son of the father. And so then who is the judge, the judge of the nations, the judge who is separating sheep and goats is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so when it comes to the last judgment, to this great sorting of sheep and goats, to matters of heaven and hell, if we can't trust Jesus to decide who can we trust, who would we rather have in that role? Who else can we trust but the one who came down from heaven for us and our salvation? Who is our judge? Our judge is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Our judge is, is the prodigal father who, who runs out and greets the younger son as he's returning home and, and, and who entreats, begs the older son to come in and join the party. Our judge is, is the vineyard owner who, who pays the workers the same wage regardless of how long they worked and goes out hour after hour after hour seeking more people. Our judge is the, the shepherd who left 99 behind to look for the one. Our judge is the woman who swept her whole house looking for just one coin. Our judge is the one who said that he came to seek and save the lost. That his life's mission was to give his life as a ransom for many. Our judge is the one who, Paul tells us, that while we were still his enemies, died for us. So that's who our judge is. The one who is all that and did all that for us. Our judge is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so while this passage is, I mean, this picture of an end and of a final judgment, it is unsettling, but it doesn't disturb me because ultimately if there is going to be justice, if there is going to be sorting, if there is going to be heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal damnation, there is no one I trust more than Jesus to do it right and to get it right. I trust that there will be perfect justice because we have a perfect judge. That's why I love that Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one. I mean, it's, it's so classic. What is my only comfort in life and in death, in matters of eternity, matters of heaven and hell? My only comfort in life and in death is what? That I'm not my own, but I belong both body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can trust in the justice of the final judgment because we know the final judge. We know his heart. We know his character. We know his desires. And you know the judge, and Jesus here provides us with the standards of judgment. Why do the sheep get let in and the goats get left out? It has everything here to do with how they treated the least of these. And this is a recurring theme that we see in Matthew, that, that, that Jesus cares about the little. He says, the, the little ones, suffer them not to come unto me. And Jesus welcomes the little ones. He rewards little faith. He multiplies little loaves and fishes. So again and again and again we see in Matthew that little is much in the hands of Christ. And so salvation has to do not with the greatest, the greatest people, the greatest deeds, the greatest faith, but with the little and the least. And when we hear Jesus describing the least of these, uh, this question 
comes is who are they? And the obvious answer is the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the homeless, the sick, the imprisoned. But when we read this text closely, the question isn't who are the least of these, but who is the one who is the least? Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me, Jesus says. And as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so Jesus himself is the least. So Christ is here in the least because he came lived and died as one of them. So the same judge who Jesus is returning in glory and with all of his angels is going to sit on his throne is the same one who died the sh- a shameful death in public view between two thieves. The same one who says that he's there in the hungry, fasted for 40 days in the wilderness and resisted the temptations of the devil even as he hungered. It's the same one who cried out on the cross, I thirst, and was given a sponge of sour wine. The same one who came to his own and his own recognized him not, and he was rejected as a stranger. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He came clothed in righteousness, and the soldiers stripped him naked, and they divided his clothes. The same one who, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was arrested, said, My soul is sick. It is afflicted to the point of death. Stay with me here and keep watch. And his disciples fell asleep. The same one who was arrested and falsely accused and falsely imprisoned and tortured and publicly executed by the representatives of the greatest religion and greatest political system the world had known to that point. And no one visited him. He was utterly abandoned by those closest to him. So Jesus hungered. He thirsted. He was homeless, naked, afflicted, and imprisoned. So Jesus is present in the least because he is the Son of God incarnate, who for us and our salvation became the least. We can trust Jesus to judge justly because he understands and has experienced the worst of human injustice. It's not as if you know, Christ ascends into heaven and, and goes to the right hand of the Father and then abandons us to return to some absentee landlord and go, what, what have you done to this place? Martin Luther, as he was reflecting on this passage, said, the world is full, full of God. In every alley before your door, you find Christ. Christ is present in every person who uh, the great Christian educator Henrietta Muir said is dying for a drop of love. She says, every person you meet is dying for a drop of love. And that's such a wonderful paraphrase of what it means to meet and minister to Christ in the least of these. Every person we meet is dying for a drop of love, and we will be judged by whether or not we gave someone a drop. Whether or not we met those most basic of human needs for food and for shelter and for freedom. So if we want to enter the kingdom, Jesus says, we will be judged by whether or not we served him and how we tended to the needs of the least of those in our midst. And what strikes me about this teaching here isn't how hard it is, like this impossible standard that Jesus has set up. But actually, it's shockingly easy. It's eminently doable. And Jesus doesn't even spell out exactly how we're supposed to do it. 
You know, we think of hungry and, 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 and thirsty and, and, and homeless, and we think of, you know, homeless shelters and soup kitchens and, and prison and visitation ministries, and we can do all that. But we could also do it through starting a business, building a company, educating people, working in a healing profession, so that the, the least of these are empowered to stand up on their own two feet. But we can also do it when we care for people in our own families. Who among us hasn't fed a hungry child or cared for a sick or aging parent? And Jesus doesn't say that we have to do it for everybody. He says, truly I say to you, whenever you did it to one, one of the least of these, you did it to me. Just one. Now, one last thing. Does Jesus' teaching here contradict the gospel of grace based on faith and not good works that was preached by Paul and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and Karl Barth? By no means. What this passage teaches is what we see time and time again in the New Testament. It's a judgment based on good works that springs first from the blessedness of the Father. Jesus has the king saying at the beginning of our passage, Come you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So it starts with the Father's blessing and preparation of this kingdom. Our words of encouragement this morning were that great statement of what, you know, would be called a Protestant, sort of Protestant faith. That For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. That's usually where we stop. But Paul continues, he says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Jesus Christ for what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is a wonderful summary of the consistent scriptural teaching on the relationship between faith and good works. It starts with grace that leads to faith that manifests itself in good works. These things inherently belong together. And I say again, what God has joined together, let no one separate and parse out. And finally, as we're reflecting on this passage, I just want to close with these words from Dale Bruner, because I think he, he understands this aspect of the text so well. He says, for gospel-centered Christians, this passage cannot be appropriated in a way that makes faith, that makes Jesus and faith in him expendable. For it is Jesus who teaches this salvation, and it is Jesus alone who merits it. And the amnesty is only his to give. Jesus is the one who says, earns, and guarantees the truth of our story, which is simply, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The merciful will get into the kingdom only because of Christ's blood shed for them, not because of their mercy. In the very same way, believers too get into the kingdom on the basis of Christ's work, not on the basis of the strength or weakness of their faith. Some people accept Christ, even unconsciously in other people. In the deed of love, the confession of Jesus occurs. This is the final revelation of the final revelation speech of Jesus. So friends, when we hear this, go and do likewise. And when it comes to, you know, goats and sheep, be the sheeple that God wants you to be. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.